Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Nationally, politically, socially, economically, religiously, culturally, it had all been mixed together at this time, at this place, and it wasn't an accident. If you think the Middle East has tension right now, you need to go back some 2,000 years before, and what you see is a powder keg of mixed emotions just ready to explode. 2,000 years ago was the very first Palm Sunday. And the people who celebrated Palm Sunday were the people of the Israelites, God's chosen people. You got to go back a thousand years before that to understand what they were going through. For a thousand years, these people hadn't known freedom. For a thousand years, they had been under the rule of another. For a thousand years, since the time of King David, they hadn't known peace. For a thousand years, they had been tossed back and forth like pawns between the powerhouses of the day, between the Babylonians and the Persians, the Greeks, and now the Romans. And during all of that, they waited. They waited in hope. They waited in expectation for deliverance. And this wasn't waiting just on a whim, but it was waiting on the word of God, the promise of our God who said he would send a Messiah, who said he would send a Savior. But for 300 years, nothing. For 300 years, they hadn't heard the word of God. It had been 300 years since the last prophet spoke to God's people Israel. That's a long time to wait for the word of God, especially when you're waiting for his Messiah, when you're waiting for the one he said would come and give you that deliverance, to give you that peace, to give you the hero, the king, to save you. And yet it had been three years. It had been three years of teaching after teaching was after teaching and miracle after miracle after miracle. And no longer was the question was, hey, do you think he could be the one? But now the question was, do you think he is the one or don't you? Pick a side. Do you think this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is the son of the most high God? Or do you hate him because over and over and over again, he claims to be that. He claims to be the Messiah. It's that mixed emotions that's going on during the time of the very first Palm Sunday. And you sprinkle on top of that the fact that the Israelites are celebrating the Passover. Now you need to go back 1,500 years before the first Palm Sunday, where the very first Passover was being celebrated. God's people, Israel, were being held as captive slaves in Egypt. And they cried out to God. They asked for deliverance. They asked for God to free them from their slavery. And he heard their prayers and he ripped apart Egypt by sending plagues, including the 10th and the worst plague, which was the death of the firstborn male son in every home. That is, unless, unless you killed a lamb, unless you and your family sacrificed a lamb and painted the blood across the doorstep of your home. And if that happened, death passed over and you didn't experience death. And now for 1,500 years, God's people, the Hebrews, the Israelites, they had celebrated that night, the night of the Passover, this week in this city, the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was on standby. Rome was on watch. 
No longer did guards patrol in twos and fours, but they patrolled in twelves. People came from all over the place. The city that was about 100,000 in size doubled, some think even tripled during the time of the Passover. Oh, this city was fragile. And it was in this city, in this week, on this day, that Jesus decided it's go time. It's time to go into Jerusalem. That's what our Savior did. I'm in Luke chapter 19. I'm going to begin reading at verse 28. If you're not there already, I invite you to get there, to open up your Bibles and keep your finger in Luke chapter 19 as we read it throughout our sermon today. And what we see is a complex mix of emotions. We've seen celebration on the part of the people who live there, and we see consternation on the part of the people ruling. We see majesty, and we see humility in the king. We see expectation and also realization as the king comes and people find out this this is who the king is. Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 28. After Jesus said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, what are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the They replied, the Lord needs it. We're going to come back to that in just a second. But for now, they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put it on Jesus. Let's pause there. How many of you remember the Old Testament lesson from Zechariah? that I read just a moment ago, talking about the king. I hope you remember it because I tell you what, the people who were crowded around Jesus, who were in Jerusalem at the time, they remembered that verse. They remembered that Zechariah said, daughter Zion, daughter Jerusalem, see, look, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a donkey. This was a messianic prophecy and the people would have known it and the people would have known that Jesus was choosing to do this was not any kind of mistake. It was a prophecy fulfilled. And yeah, it was a little bit different. It was a little bit of a mix-up from what kings normally did. Kings normally came riding into town on a stallion named Lightning, not my little pony. Normally, they came in with something that showed their power, their might. Not unlike today where you see people come in with armored black SUVs, not riding in on a moped. But that's what Jesus did. Jesus came according to to what the Old Testament prophesied that he would do. And because of that, precisely because of it, all the people went nuts. Listen, I'm at verse 36. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And this just wasn't the 12 disciples that Jesus had told him. This was all of Jerusalem that was out there on the Mount of Olives. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Glory in the highest. Does that refrain ring a bell? Have you heard that before? Maybe on some other hills just outside a town called Bethlehem? Yet glory in the highest, peace in heaven and peace on earth are what the angel choirs sang the day that this king was born. And now the people are singing it again. 
They're singing it again, and as they do, they're quoting the 118th Psalm that tells us more about who this king, this Messiah king would be. He would be a king who comes in the name of the Lord. He comes with power, the authority of Yahweh. And he's a king who comes to give peace. And yet despite that, despite the praise, the praise that was due this king, the praise that he received, there was mixed emotions. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He replied, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. In other words, what Jesus is saying, that if my people do not praise me, all of creation will acclaim me as king. He looked at them, Pharisees, Jesus haters, the people who wanted him dead. He looked at them and he said, listen, you can tell these people to be quiet, but creation will not stop announcing my name and who I am. Verse 41, as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground you and their children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Has the thought ever crossed your mind that the day that we call Palm Sunday, the celebration parade that we call Palm Sunday, ended with Jesus crying and ends with Jesus weeping? And he tells us why. He tells us it's because you, you didn't recognize the time of God's coming to you. You didn't recognize who I am. You didn't recognize that I'm Emmanuel. I am God with you. You see, not everyone, and maybe even not anyone, truly understood who he was. Oh sure, even the Pharisees, they wanted the Messiah to come. So often we, we picture the Pharisees as these godless people. No, the Pharisees wanted the Messiah to come. They knew what the Old Testament said. They wanted their Messiah, but they wanted him to come with power. They wanted him to come with strength. They wanted him to come and when he set up his kingdom, they wanted to have set up for them positions of power. And Jesus didn't fit that bill. Even the average Jew, the average Israelite that made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, when they sat down and they celebrated the Passover and remembered the deliverance that God gave and prayed for the freedom that he would give one day when another lamb came to sacrifice, all they could think about was deliverance over their present captors, deliverance from Rome. All they could think about were the good old days when, when maybe God would restore their land to the prosperity that it experienced under King David. The economic standing that they had under his son, King Solomon. All they wanted was for Jesus to be that guy. They didn't really think about him being their God. You know, if we throw a birthday party for somebody and everybody has a really fun time, except the birthday boy is crying, 
How can we call that a triumph? How can we call that a success? And yet that's what's happening here on Palm Sunday. Many of your Bibles probably call it the triumphant entry. And yet, look, Jesus is crying and he tells us why. If you're filling out your sermon guide this morning, here's the first fill in the blank. The first one is that Jesus cried. Why? Because Israel wanted a king and yet they were mixed up about his kingdom. Yeah, everybody there that day wanted a king. Yet they were confused about what kingdom Jesus would establish. In just a few short days, Pontius Pilate would ask Jesus, are you a king? And you'd tell him, yeah, you said it. It's exactly what you say. He said, where's your kingdom? He says, my kingdom's not of this world. If it were, armies would come and I wouldn't be standing before you like this. Here's the king. And yet, on this day, this day of mixed emotions, the people who are standing around the king, they're missing something. They're missing something about him. And I wonder, I wonder if we miss something too. I wonder if we look at Jesus, if we ever experience mixed feelings or do you ever experience mixed emotions about Jesus? I'm not talking, are you for him or are you not for him? But are you for his glory? Are you for his glory and his kingdom's glory? Or are you for your glory and this, this here and now glory? See, everyone can be all about the glory of the Lord, his glory when he's standing up on the mountaintop, when people are crowded around him, when people are praising him, when it's really, really cool for people to follow him. But what about when he descends into the valley? What about when he goes into the thick of things, when he goes into the city and those gathered around aren't praising his name? Is that? What about when the crowd around you is denying who he is and, and that's what's easier for you to do? Whose glory are you about then? That's the question that I want to answer with the rest of our time this morning is what does it look like for us, for you and for me, the disciples of Christ, his followers, to pursue and to promote his glory, not yours? What does it look like, in other words, to shine the, life, the light of your life, not on you, but on him? And let the light, the spotlight in your life shine in you and through you and onto Christ. I want to answer that by looking at two examples, two quick examples from our text. The first one came right at the beginning of our text. Did you catch it? Jesus says right before he goes into Jerusalem, he says to two disciples, go to the village ahead of you and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. I mean, picture it. Jesus says it's go time. He says we're going into Jerusalem and everyone shouts, everyone's cheering because this is what they had been waiting for for his entire ministry. They had been waiting to go to Jerusalem because they knew that's what he came here to do. And Jesus gathers everybody around. He's like the quarterback in the backyard. He says, all right, I want you to go here and get this ready. I want you to go get these supplies. And you two, I want you to go ahead into Bethphage, and you're going to find a baby donkey there, untie it, bring it back to me. And if anybody questions you and tries to stop you, just say, the Lord needs it, and that'll take care of it. I mean, put yourself in your, their shoes. They're walking along, and they say, did, did Jesus just ask us to jack a baby donkey? Now, you go take it. There it is. Now, you do it. 
And so finally they rush up, they take it. The owner comes out and says, hey, what are you doing with my donkey? They go, the Lord needs it, and they run off. And it works. I mean, I look at these disciples, and if they had come up with some objection or even some clarification to Jesus, could you blame them? I mean, Jesus, are you, are you sure you want a donkey? I'll pay for the upgrade for a camel or an oxen. Jesus, are you sure we can just go up there and take it and the Lord needs it will be enough explanation? Are you sure you don't want me to bring some cash along and help pay for it? Yet they didn't object. They didn't ask for clarification. They just did it. Jesus said, go, find a donkey, untie it, bring it back, and they did it. They obeyed him without objection. That's the first thing that it looks like to pursue and promote the glory of God. It's to obey him without objection, even, and in fact, and especially when what God is asking you to do might not make sense. When it might not make the most rational sense to do what he's telling you to do. Jesus said, do it, so I do it. God says, listen, listen, I want you to obey those who are in positions of authority and power over you. And you say, God, I do not. I do not agree with the decision my parents made. I do not agree with the decision my boss made. I don't agree with the things my government decided to do. I don't agree with the things my church decided to do. And yet, and yet because you put these people in a position of power and authority over me and they're not asking me to do something that is contrary to the will and the word of God, I'll do it. I'll do it because you said it. And I trust you, God, that you care about me. It's looking and saying, God, I know that you commanded me not to have sexual relations outside of marriage, and yet everyone's doing it, and it makes sense to me. And yet I trust you I can do this because you told me it. It's saying, God, this person has hurt me so badly this person has crushed me and now you tell me to forgive them? You tell me to turn the other cheek? That's not what I want to do. That's not how I'm feeling. But God, I trust that you said I can do this and so I will. When you obey him without objection, there is not a bolder move that a disciple of Christ can make to take the light of their life and take the spotlight off of them and what they want and put it on Christ. I like how one Bible commentary uh, writer, Werner Franzman, said it about these disciples. He said it's to their credit that these two disciples did not hesitate to obey Jesus' order. Instead, they just believed that their Lord knew all things. And he goes on to say this, Let us do our Lord's will with the same type of unquestioning obedience since he is the all-wise Savior whose heart is filled with love for us. Therefore, all his directions for our life can only be aimed at our lasting good. Then we will resist the temptation to quibble about his will and this thing or that thing saying, but the Lord's doing might cost me money. It might make me less popular. I might not have as much fun. You see, when you do the things that you do not understand, but you do them because the Lord says to do them, you're giving glory to him. You're being about kingdom glory not your glory here's a second example the second example comes uh, or is illustrated perhaps by the most unlikely of things in the story 
It's the colt. It's the unbroken, unridden donkey. How many of you have ever ridden a horse? I'll tell you this, but the last time, all right, all right, quite a few people. So I don't know, I didn't know if I was going to tell you this, but the last time I rode a horse was when I was a sophomore or a junior in high school. We went out to my friend Mitch's house, and Mitch's parents owned a couple horses, and they were going to give all those guys a chance to, to ride on the horses. And they told us, it's really simple, the horse is really well trained. If you want it to slow down or stop, you just got to pull back gently on the reins and say, whoa. If you want it to speed up a little bit, just give it a little bit on the reins and go, and it'll go. But only do that like once or twice because you guys are kind of inexperienced riders and you want to go much faster than that. I said, yeah, right. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to impress my friends. So I went to the very opposite end of the field where my friends were standing and watching. And I started out, gave it one, two, and then I took off and I said, let's pick it up. Gave it another one. And I didn't think it responded very well. So I gave it two more real quick. And all of a sudden, it's taking off across the field. And I'm bouncing in the saddle up and down. And I start yelling, whoa, 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 stop. Stop. And I brought it to a stop. And all my friends are laughing. And I think I'm pretty cool because at least I made my friends laugh from taking a horse that fast. But you see, the joke was on me. Because later I went and I looked at the video that my friends took. And the horse went from like a slow trot to just a slight little gallop, and it wasn't moving fast at all. The thing is, with horses, it's not like in cartoons or movies where you can just like jump on them and take off on this horse that's never been broken or trained before. You need to train them. You need to break a horse to be able to ride it. You need to be experienced to be able to ride a horse well. And yet, look what Jesus does. He takes a horse, a colt that's never been broken, that's never been ridden before, and he doesn't just ride it, he rides it right through a crowd of people that are screaming and shouting as he goes by. He rides it through a crowd of people who are ripping palm branches off trees and waving them in the face of the animal. People who are taking their cloaks off and throwing it in front of it, and what does the beast do? Keeps on going. When Jesus steps up into the saddle of this colt, it doesn't experience panic, but experiences peace. So let me ask you, what do you experience when Jesus sits in the saddle of your life? When Jesus takes the top spot in your life, do, you, do all the noise, all the distractions, all the things that are shouting to get your attention, do they go away? No, they don't disappear. But in the midst of things that cause panic, you experience peace. They don't go away, but in the midst of it, Christ gives you his peace. And he does you, here's the kicker. He does it without breaking you and without those things breaking you either. What does it look like when Christ takes the number one spot, the top spot in your life? You see, all of us have a pedestal in our life. Let me say that again. All of us have one. Take the singular pedestal in our life. And something, one thing, is going to take the spot on that pedestal. For some of us, it's going to be our family. Our family is going to sit up there and it's going to kick Christ off. For some of us, it's going to be our jobs, our careers, our ministries. Okay, that one was for me. For some of us, it's going to be money. For some of us, it's, it's going to be our reputation. What other people think about us is the most important thing. For some, it's going to be romance. For some, it's going to be hobbies. 
For some, it's going to be less virtuous things. It might be our sins, our vices that sit on that pedestal. The only question is, what will sit on that pedestal? Because something has to, something will. And if anything, if anything besides Christ is on that pedestal, you might be happy, you might be content for a while, but eventually it's going to fail you and break you. I like how one pastor put it. He said, Jesus is the only master that can control you without destroying you. Jesus is the only master that can drive you without breaking you. To the degree that Christ is in the top spot in your life, to the degree that he is taking center stage, to that degree, you don't need anything else. To that degree, you don't need to fear anything else. You don't need to fear failure. You don't need to feel rejection. You don't even need to fear death. If Christ is in that top spot in your life, because when Christ sits in the saddle of your life, he doesn't necessarily get rid of all those things, but what he does is bring peace. He brings peace amidst the panic. And here's the second thing, what it looks like to give glory, what it looks like to pursue and promote the glory of Christ over yours. It's to elevate him without equal. It's to put nothing else on that pedestal with Christ. It's to make sure that there's nothing else that's going to crowd him out. That's what it looks like to pursue and promote his glory over yours. Why does that work? Why is that possible? Is it even possible to obey him without objection, to elevate him without equal? And it is. It is because, you see, our Savior was the perfect Messiah King for people like you and me, people with mixed emotions. And don't put in me, don't put in you there, put in your name. That Christ is the perfect Messiah King for people with mixed emotions like Matt, who, yeah, wants to be about Christ's glory, but so often pursues mine. For people like me, who want to obey him, and yet always find reasons to seek clarification or all-out objection. For people like me who want to elevate him and have him be the sole authority, the sole savior, the sole king ruling my life, but so often let other things dictate how I live. He is the one. He is the one who rode into Jerusalem And behind those mild eyes that looked out over a crowd of people that were singing his praises, he knew. He knew that at the end of the week they wouldn't shout Hosanna, they'd shout crucify him. And yet he wrote on. He's the one behind humble eyes looked, looked squarely into the eyes of the Pharisees, people who he knew would try to kill him. And he said, all creation will acclaim me, although he knew That as he took on the sins of the world, the sky would go black, the ground would shake, and his father would reject him for your sake. He was the one who looked at his disciples, who looked at him as they enjoyed the praise, as they enjoyed the procession that they were being a part of, and he knew one would hand him over, another would deny him, and the rest would all flee from him. And he looks out over that crowd, the crowd that we stand into, and he knows that we're going to do the same. And yet he is the perfect Messiah King for people like you and I, because yet in spite of all that, he rode on. He rode on to die for you. 
He rode on to die to give you triumph over sin, to give you triumph over death. Listen, so often we look at what happened on Good Friday and Easter and this whole Holy Week and we say, yeah, yeah, I know that Christ died for the sins of the whole world. I know that he died and he rose again and that is an objective fact that, yeah, I believe. But listen, he did all that for you. As he came up over the hill of the Mount of Olives and he looked out and he wept, Knowing what would happen, listen to what he said. He said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what, or better yet, who? Who would bring you peace? Listen, as you enter Holy Week this week, as you get ready to celebrate and remember his death and rejoice next to his open tune, remember that all of this, all of this was for you. In fancy church words, we call it the vicarious atonement, or in other words, the substitutionary atonement, that Christ sat in your place for you. Everything that he was about to do, he did it for you, and it needed to be that way. It needed to be Christ for you, because people with mixed emotions couldn't perfectly or purely Never will elevate him without equal. And yet our perfect Messiah King came. And he was the perfect, perfect mix of a king and a servant. So that he could serve you and give you not what you wanted, but everything that you need. He was the perfect mix of both majesty and humility. Why? So that he could humble himself to death. A death for you. He was the perfect mix of both, of both royalty and accessibility so that the life that he got by raising himself from the grave is one now that you have access through for him, from him. He is the perfect Messiah King. He is the perfect Messiah King for people with mixed emotions just like you and me. Psychologists say that mixed emotions are a good thing. They, they help us be more resilient people. They help us look at life and say, hey, I can take the good with the bad. But in Christ, there is no need to take the good with the bad because he is the perfect, perfect one in whom there are no mixed emotions. There's no more confusion over our obedience. There's no more confusion over who we elevate and who we obey. No. He says, I'm not going to let you take good with the bad. I'm going to take the bad and give you only good. As you get ready for Holy Week, as you enter in Holy Week this week, I want to encourage you to stop. To stop and look and reflect on what the humble state of your Savior means. That he comes riding in on a donkey. That your Savior and a God suffers the cruel death of a crucifixion for you. I want you to watch all of it. I want you to see it. But don't stare too long. Lest you forget that he comes to you with power. He comes to you with victory. He comes to you with a victory already won. He comes to you with redemption in his wings for you that is yours by faith. That is what he comes with for you. No scheme of Satan, no power of man could trump that. He comes and he obliterates everything that could stand in his path. It's what Zechariah, it's what the Israelites longed to see. It's what they waited for. It's what they hoped for. And by God's grace, it's what we get to stand here and see. That yeah, we celebrate Palm Sunday and our king rides on to die. But he also rides on to celebrate a victory over death for you. Amen.